So something you may or may not know about me, I, I don't think I've mentioned it on this show. I used to want to write sports feature pieces. I wanted to delve into the human condition by looking at this nice, neat microcosm of humanity. I didn't love the games as much. I love the games as a fan, but I wanted to write the stories. And then 2008 happened and newspapers and print uh, hasn't been doing that well in general. But in 2008, that was really, really bad. Not quite as bad as now, unfortunately. I can't believe I'm saying that. But when I graduated college, there really were no publications hiring young sports journalists. So after a summer of thrashing, I got really lucky and I wound up with a job at Google. And so I found myself in tech, I found myself in business, and I thought, this is another microcosm of humanity and another place rich in story. And I never looked back. I've worked in content marketing, creative roles, editorial roles, focused on the business world, and it is my dream, my grand delusion to be the Anthony Bourdain of business. I know, I know, not so much on this show, but I do have another podcast called Unthinkable, which is very Bourdain-esque, if I do say so myself. Unthinkable. Anyways, as I continue to search for businesses and media outlets that cover the business and career topics in a way that feels like my beloved sports media, human-centric, story-driven, tone-of-voice-driven, everybody points to the same media company, Morning Brew. Morning Brew is a newsletter-centered business media company, and they have a podcast at the core of what they do alongside their newsletter. It's called Business Casual. And today, we're going to talk to the host, Kinsey Grant, and we're going to break down her interviewing technique for a show that has really thrust her into the limelight as a young and up-and-coming voice in the business space. Specifically, we're going to break down an episode where she interviews somebody who is often interviewed and incredibly polished, the former CEO of Google, Eric Schmidt. Kinsey is interviewing lots of people who have been famous longer than she's been alive. How does she do it? I want to know how to do the things to do. A thing, a two, a three that only comes from you. Welcome to Three Clips, where podcasters take us inside their best work. I'm your host, Jay Akunzo. I'm a writer, a speaker, an author. I make a lot of stuff. It's hard to explain what I do. I just make stuff for makers, all right? <laughs> and it's my firmest belief about creativity and making stuff that it's all about the hidden, tiny techniques, the micro moments that so often go unspoken and unshared. So every episode, we ask a podcaster we admire to break down something they made a few little pieces at a time. In this episode, as I mentioned at the top, we're going to talk to Kinsey Grant, host of Business Casual, the show run by Morning Brew. And uh, this show started in September of 2019, and they run two episodes a week. Every week they have a different theme, and they talk to two people they think can really examine that theme in business. So the show is an interview-style show, and Business Casual aims to be a kind of tastemaker of what's important to know about for modern business. Kinsey developed a very broadcasting-esque voice at her college news outlet. Uh, it was actually the only local news outlet for her area, Lexington, Virginia. She wrote stories for TV, for the web. She was a news anchor, even did some weather reporting. And then she was a reporter for the business and investing news outlet, The Street, before joining Morning Brew. Today, she takes us inside their show to reveal some of the small things that make a big difference for business casual. I have had very many uh, now Zoom drinks 
but also in-person drinks with other interviewers. And one of the things we always end up talking about is kind of where I just want to start with you, which is toughest interview. I think in terms of the incredibly well-coached and well-media-trained CEOs, I would have to say Meg Whitman was incredibly difficult because she had a kind of an agenda and it was difficult to get her to move out of, of I don't know, the, the guideposts that her press team had probably given her. Eventually she did and, and she ended up being really forthcoming, but that was a little tough. What do you do when somebody is giving you soundbite after soundbite? I think part of it is just going in as well prepared as possible as a host. So you know what those sound bites are when you hear something that sounds really familiar that you've heard this person say before, trying to prod them for a different answer or even saying, I've heard you say that before. Can you give me something different? Do you have a different perspective now than you did like a year ago? And I love those moments. I think they create really natural and and conversational like tension is always good in an interview podcast. And um, that kind of tension feels healthy and good and not disingenuous or, or malicious. In any yeah. way. How do you create that tension if you're not asking them to redo an answer? Have you figured out ways to do that? It, it can be tough. And, and I also yeah. will say as a, a relatively young podcast host who oftentimes is interviewing people who have been in their jobs for longer than I have literally been alive, it can be really, really scary and intimidating to try and like push you know, Meg Whitman or, or like Mark Cuban to say something but you just have to get comfortable with it. We always say that we would rather somebody walk out of an interview because they were so frustrated they couldn't finish it than to feel like it was a walk in the park. That's always kind of been our goal. And so when I'm when I'm trying to create that kind of conversational tension, a lot of it is just having points going into an interview, knowing where I might disagree with this person uh, personally. And, and of course, I need to maintain my object, objectivity as a journalist and, and all of that is incredibly important. But I do think that having some um, idea of where you might disagree, where you might have a different perspective on something can really enforce that natural conversational tone, but also in in like a two smart people having a conversation way, not in I want to fight you on this and I think you're wrong and here's why. So I actually disagree with every single word that you just said. I don't, but people were like, whoa, right? Like that moment, yeah. people were like, wait, something's coming. And and to me, that's, that's what's missing. It's just like the healthy disagreement where you're not just going to be like, that's awesome. Or my tick was always got it. Right. And then yeah. I would ask the next question. Yeah. So Everybody all, has a got it. Mine yeah. was interesting for a while. I would always say, I'm curious to hear. Like, we have these little crutches in, in our vocabulary that are sometimes indications that we're thinking or trying to move on. Yeah. Ready for this? Got yeah. it. <laughs> got it. Okay. So now that you've heard a little bit from Kinsey, it's time to break down business casual piece by piece. Before we get into that, We first got to pay the bills really quick with a message from our sponsor. This episode is sponsored by Wistia. In 2012, I began a years-long relationship with the wonderful group of humans that works for that company. They make software to help you find, engage, and grow your audience using video and through making shows. And I've talked to countless numbers of that team and consider many of them friends and mentors, and we all agree on one core belief. When you build a brand, Focus your marketing on making stuff people like, not making people like stuff. Fast forward to today, and Wistia has named that idea, brand affinity marketing. I've said it before, I'll say it a million times more, great marketing is not about grabbing attention, it's about holding it. It's not about who arrives, it's about who stays. Awareness is not the goal, affinity is. So if you agree, check out Wistia's Brand Affinity Marketing Playbook. This thing is totally free. You don't have to fill out any kind of form. And honestly, it's just beautifully designed. The playbook talks about stuff like finding and understanding your niche, 
creating original series that resonate, marketing like a media company, and measuring resonance over reach. I could not love that part more. So visit wistia.com, that's W-I-S-T-I-A.com to explore their great resources about building better brands. And while you're there, check out the Brand Affinity Marketing Playbook. Okay, let's deconstruct Business Casual and learn how it's made and how Kinsey thinks about the art of the interview, especially interviewing famous guests. We're going to start with the section about the premise. (laughs) So let's actually dive into the episode we're going to deconstruct from you today. So when you make a show, the point is not to just make like some content. The point is to make something that matters to people. Right. Spoiler alert. I, I guess that's that's what I'm reading in the notes here. I guess that's the truth here. It just happens to be some content, but through that content, you're trying to make a difference. And I think what that means first and foremost for showrunners and hosts is you have to develop the premise of the show, the idea driving every episode. What is the show for overall for the listener? And so I think that premise can inform every choice you make as a showrunner, who you speak to, the questions you ask them, how you're different than others. And it also informs the listener's decision to self-select into your show. So I like to say that the premise provides motivation to subscribe, and that grows your show. Yeah. So I want to play a clip that I think actually speaks to your show's premise with Business Casual. In this clip, it comes at the very beginning of your episode with former Google CEO and executive chairperson, Eric Schmidt. And he's talking more about his work now. And you had just welcomed him into the show and mentioned that, that he is the former CEO of Google. And then you follow up with this little detail. I want to run through before we get into the meat of that conversation, a little bit of your background beyond just Google, you know, included about a decade as a CEO of Google, several years as the executive chairman of Google and then Alphabet, a couple after that as an advisor to the company. Post Google, you have also been the chairman of the Department of Defense's Innovation Board, a member of NASA's National Space Council User Advisory Group, currently the chairman of the U.S. National Security Commission for Artificial Intelligence, a celebrated philanthropist and probably... Most important of all of these, a fellow podcast host. <laughs> That's right. You're being too kind. I've just started doing a podcast. And how how do you like it so far? How's the host life treating you? Um, let's just say that yours is better than mine, but I'm working on it. So thoughts, reflections, feelings, <laughs> what did you pick up on hearing yourself there? Yeah, it, I think with, with Eric specifically, he has such a storied career in tech and in government more recently. And I really wanted to highlight that. And Oftentimes, people aren't interested in hearing me read a guest's resume to them. That's not what they come to the show for. But with someone like Eric, I really wanted to drive home just how much this guy has done, how that should inform what you take away from this conversation. I also like the way that you built tension in the bio where you were like, he's this, he's this, he's that, he's that, he's that. And then at the end, at the pinnacle, you put up there... Oh, and he just started a podcast, which kind of brings him down to like a more relatable human level. He's not just an avatar of success. He is a guy trying to figure out how to do this thing. I think that it's so important to humanize every guest that we have on this show. Sure, they're billionaires and some of the most influential decision makers in the country and in the world, but they're also people. I think that's so important because they are telling stories that people might not always be able to relate to, but you can always relate to another person who is has some sort of universal human experience that that speaks to everybody's experience. I, I think of this, you know, the, you know, the game Two Truths and a Lie. So I think of it as like two titles and a hobby where you're like, they're the CEO of this, the ex chairman of that and a certified barbecue judge, right? <laughs> yeah. Like you relieve some tension where you're like building that person up 
and and then you do humanize them by giving some kind of factoid, which I think serves the listener and also your cause to relate to the guests and have them be like, oh, they've done their research. This is going to be different. Yeah. And oftentimes we find that when we include things like that, that is what the listener latches onto. Like I could say any number of things about Eric Schmidt deciding when rockets go where and they're like, oh, but he has a podcast. Exactly. Exactly. And and so I think I want to do something different. So usually we stay high level in this section. I do want to zoom in to talk about this guest in particular and then zoom out with a couple of questions about your overall show. Sure. How did you even book Eric Schmidt? Let's start there. It's actually a lot easier than you think to reach so many of these people. And they might hate that I'm putting them on blast. But like, sometimes all you have to do is tweet, I want to talk to this person. Can anybody put me in touch with them? Sometimes all it takes is like a smart Google search. With Eric's team, we had been in touch with them. And and they had planned on working with us at some point in 2020. It was just a matter of when. But with a lot of our guests, especially the big name guests, we just send the email half expecting to get a no. But my attitude is always that's the worst possible outcome. Like nobody is going to blacklist you from anything because you ask them in a polite way to consider coming on your show or just can I send you more information? Oftentimes they'll be flattered even if they say no. So it's worth sending any email. You never know who's going to say yes. So Eric um, has been or around that time had been doing a lot of press. I'm wondering because he's doing that, there's, there's like a lot of things that can go right for a podcaster. Like they are probably more likely to say yes. There's also a lot of things that could go wrong. Like they are being asked lots of questions all yeah. the time. They could be fatigued and annoyed, or they could just have the same soundbite on every show. And so I'm wondering, just from a behind the scenes standpoint, when you're working to book someone like Eric, do you feel like there's constraints at all? Like, are they saying, hey, you can't touch on these topics, but he wants to talk about these? Like how much direction are are, are people around? And you can generalize if you don't want to talk about Eric, but like how many constraints are placed on you by people's handlers when they're that big and that visible in the moment? It it often depends on the guest. Some have really, really involved PR teams and some do not. And obviously, as a journalist who wants to ask these prying questions, I prefer the latter. But it, it all is a matter of preparing expectations for everybody from my team to the guests to the guest team, making sure everybody is on the same page in terms of what I want to talk about and also being willing to say no. You know, Sometimes we have a really great guest put in front of us and they say, all we're interested in talking about is this book. If that book doesn't serve the interests of our audience, we're going to say, thank you so much. We're going to pass at this moment, but like, let's stay in touch. We'll come back another time and hopefully find something that works. Yeah. And also part of that is, is sending prep to the guest. I certainly would never send a list of questions to the guest, but I always send to to the guest and to their team, if they have a team, usually uh, a sort of like outline. Here are the big picture topics I want to talk about with this person. Do you feel comfortable with these? Is there anything you don't feel comfortable with? If there is, I would like to know before we confirm that this is going to happen. And that has been hugely helpful for all of us, I think. I spent a bizarre amount of time talking to other podcasters on the show and in general. And I think that's such a hot button issue, especially for business podcasters. I don't know what it is about the business niche in particular. When people debate, should you send questions ahead of time or not? You seem to have a very similar stance to mine, which is, oh, hell no, I am not sending you exact questions. Why is that your stance? I think that 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 reduces this tension that we've been talking about. When somebody can prepare an answer to every single question that you're going to ask them, you don't get the conversational aspect. You don't get those natural pauses in conversation or the ums or the, wow, that's a great questions. Those are all erased if somebody has a script sitting right in front of them. Um, and I also think that there is a lot of fun to be had as as the host in pulling out a stat that they didn't think you were going to have or pulling out some quote that they said 10 years ago and putting it back in front of them. And it's always kind of like a, 
oh, wow, okay, you, you have this. What am I going to answer next? And I think that's super fun. How, if you can remember, like when you were essentially waiting in whatever tool you use to record for Eric to show up, what's going through your mind? How are you feeling? Well, I'm lucky. I have a, a great team. Um, Josh and Marilyn are you know, my product manager and my producer for this show. Before every interview, the two of them hype me up to like, out of this world. I, you know, I have to stand up 20 minutes before my interview starts and they like tell me to go take a lap. And we always will to go back and forth and be like, what's going to be the biggest moment in this episode? What's going to be the moment that you're going to surprise people with a question? What are you most excited to ask? Like, what do you disagree with about what this guest says? And we get in that, that zone, right? So like by the time I'm logged into the recording software, I am like chomping at the bit, ready to go, ready to, to ask the hardest question I have right away. And sometimes it's difficult to pair that back and be like, okay, well, they're not in that headspace. You need to welcome them and like do a sound check. But I'm usually very excited, sometimes very nervous, but usually very excited. Do you remember what it was like with Eric? With Eric, I was very nervous. <laughs> And excited. But I've always kind of believed that that nerves can be a really, really useful tool. I think I'm I'm 26. When I interviewed Eric, I was 25. Like I, if I wasn't nervous to interview one of the brightest minds in tech and business, there would be something wrong with me. Like I would have an ego Bingo. problem. <laughs> so two questions about your planning process for these shows, both from Twitter. So this comes from a Morning Brew subscriber, Kyle Lacey, CMO of Lesson Lee, former sales and Salesforce and Exact Target marketing executive. And Kyle asks, how do you come up with topics for the show? So from day one, the purpose of Business Casual has always been to go deeper on the biggest themes and topics that we don't have the opportunity to go deeper on in the Morning Brew newsletter. That's always kind of been our, our driving force. And we have shifted the show a lot more to be especially theme first instead of guest first. I think in the early days of any podcast, it's really easy to just get a, a big guest and make a show around that uh, or make an episode around that because you know you're going to have a certain number of downloads because it's Gary V or Scott Galloway. But as we matured, we found that that's not going to create a lasting impact for people. That's not going to be um, consistent content. So we shifted to this theme first idea where we think of the evergrey concept, we quote, we call it evergrey. It's evergreenish, but it's also kind of tethered to the headlines a little bit. These are the stories that might be in the news in the coming weeks or have been in, in recent weeks, but they have an impact that will last far beyond this news cycle. So, so, so two final things I want to touch on while we're on this, this section of the show. This is another question from Twitter. It's a little bit more general. Uh, it's from a guy named Dave. I think it's like Cher. It's just Dave. What is your process to learn about the subject so quickly? So I'd say number one, relying on your own innate curiosity will get you a lot farther than we often give it credit for. If you're a curious person, you ask good questions and it helps to to have an idea of what those questions are going to be before you head in. But every single time I interview somebody, I end up asking something I wasn't prepared to ask. And that's just awesome, I think. But the other and, and probably bigger and more influential side of this is just taking the time to prepare. I think I spend six, 10 hours sometimes before an episode to get myself as prepared as possible, trying to understand everything about this guest, everything this guest has said on this topic, everything that might be the polar opposite of what this guest has said about this topic, and just arming myself with as much information as possible. So the two things that stand out most are also the two things that people bizarrely don't do. It's the, the last thing you said there was prep, having actual research time, six to 10 hours for an episode that lasts, whatever, 40-ish minutes when you go to air. Then the thing you said before that was curiosity. To, in, for my money, I'll take someone who's curious and knows the construct of great questions and pursues curiosity confidently 
over someone who is a domain expert as the interviewer 10 out of 10 times. Like I, I came out of content marketing for companies like, like Google and HubSpot. And I was always shocked by how many other brands would be like, how do you guys write so much content? Like, how do you make sure all your people on your team are experts in the thing you're writing about? And I'm like, we're not. We're not hiring marketers. We're hiring journalists. We're hiring people that are curious. We're hiring writers, not content writers, straight up writers. Right. Also, content writer is a bit like saying food chef. Why even bother? <laughs> completely agreed. Completely agreed. And and I was a journalism major. And the number one lesson they teach you when you go to journalism school, which I think they should teach you regardless of what you major in, a good journalist is a good listener. If you can listen to what this person is telling you and what they're saying to you, instead of relying on this list of questions that you have in front of you, you are going to have a better experience 10 out of 10 times. Let's go on to the next clip here. So Kinsey, I, I regret to inform you that having a great premise for a show is just a great start. Like it turns out, I don't know if people listening know this, when you have an idea, you still haven't like done anything. <laughs> Tragically. Tragic. Very tragic. Uh, so now we got to do something. Now we got to turn this premise into an experience. So if you provide motivation to the listener to subscribe, it's time to listen and you need to provide motivation to stay. And what does that is the experience. Like a show is not about grabbing attention. It's about holding attention. So I want to highlight a clip that I think uh, is a great example of you doing that, holding attention, creating a great experience. So same episode in this clip, you're talking to Eric Schmidt and it's about halfway through your interview. And you're talking about how tech uh, as a business, as a category, could benefit the government. Uh, and this is your follow-up question to Eric Schmidt saying that he believes cloud computing and automation could actually improve government operations. You followed up by saying this. So, Eric, my, my question next is just, is it realistic to expect that a government as big as, say, the United States could adopt these kind of high tech solutions to the problems that we face all the time? And we do have to input a ton of information constantly to get what we need out of the government or to to interface with the government in any capacity. Is it realistic for these solutions to actually be applied soon? I believe it is. And the reason is that the cost savings is so material. And even if you did it on a per department basis, so, you know, the IRS, I'll give you an example, the Immigration and Nationalization Service, uh, getting passports approved, all of those things. Think of all of the digital forms that you're not filling out. That if you could do all of these things, and I'll, I'll set a standard very simply. I want to be able to use all of the legitimate services of our federal and state governments from my mobile device. I want to do it with proper security, with full encryption. I don't want it to be unsafe in any way to myself. And I want there to be limits to the misuse of that information by the government to protect my privacy. That's a straightforward demand. It's a straightforward design. It's relatively easy to implement. So two questions. One, how does that affect, I guess, what share of government jobs would be automated away? And number two, who does all of the automation? Who steps in to make this happen? Well, with respect to who the contractors are, there is a large industry in Washington, D.C. of integrators who, if they were given the instruction, could move to this fairly quickly. One of the things that I've learned in my various works with the government and the military. Uh, what was going through your mind during that clip? Oh, man, it brings me right back. This is super fun. I, I think that taking the time to listen to to like the work that you put out is always weird and, and useful. But with Eric... 
and with everybody, I would say on the show, especially when we're taking on something of a contentious issue where people have these grand pie in the sky solutions to a problem that exists. My favorite question is always to ask, okay, but is that realistic? Because oftentimes the answer is no, and they are not going to be able to BS their way out of that. Like if the answer is no, it's no. Um, And in Eric's case, I think maybe it could be realistic at some point, but to the listener, when they're saying, wow, instead of going to the DMV, I can all just do it on my iPhone. That sounds great. It also doesn't sound like it's ever going to happen. And that I think, you know, is, is a healthy dose of reality. And I love asking that question because I think it, it really sometimes throws people, but also it just kind of is, is human to wonder if that could ever happen. So I, I remember asking that and probably scribbled in the margins of my notes, like, is it realistic? Is it realistic? Like I always do. One of the things I've noticed about this idea of getting people to stay is when you miss an opportunity to ask the obvious but pressing question, people, you can't hear this, but people are like, oh, it's like, of course, you should ask for the example when obviously they started that last answer saying in general, right? There's all these little cues that the listener is also picking up on that if you fail to recognize back to your being a good listener point, they could be like, this is not a great interview. I'm going to bail. And so I'm wondering, when you talk to someone like Eric Schmidt, how do you get sort of two questions here? The first is, how do you get them to be specific? Because so often people who do a lot of media or are executives, they, they do stay with these macro level ideas or whitewashed advice or sound bites. So how do you get them to actually give you the goods? I think there is um, sort of a double edged sword of asking pretty pointed questions you do run the risk of, of keeping yourself cut off from some of the maybe more interesting things you didn't see coming in an interview. But being specific in question asking usually leads to specific question answers. Can and, you give me an example? <laughs> good one. <laughs> no, I, I, I mean, if, if I could say to Eric, you know, like broadly, what's the future of big tech? Like he's going to give me a broad answer. But if I say, how should big tech interface with the government? And is it realistic to expect that they will? That's a little bit more specific. And that I, I think kind of not to pigeonhole them, but that narrows the, the spectrum of, of answers that they might give to a big question when you ask you know, a, a smaller and more pointed one. And, and that is always the, the value for people when we're trying to deliver insight. I'm not trying to deliver the kind of insight that you could get like scrolling any kind of web page. Like, we right. want it to be the insight that this specific person can give specifically. Got it. So now I said I had a second question. The second question relating to this idea is when there are things that are tougher topics somehow related to your guests. So obviously Eric Schmidt, no longer uh, the executive chairperson of Google, but Google has been in the news a lot for everything since inception forever and ever ago. But right now, I mean, you mentioned Scott Galloway. He was a guest. He's been advocating for the breakup of big tech. There's a lot of froth and conversation and debate happening around that subject, around privacy. I mean, on and on and on and on. When you know your listeners are aware of that stuff and they're thinking about it, And here you are talking to somebody who might be able to speak to it, but you know that would bring in almost too much tension or push away the guest. How do you navigate that moment? I think it's a matter of of narrowing the the interview before it starts of understanding what you want the the listener to get out of this. In the case of Eric, uh, certainly I'm sure if I asked him about breaking up big tech, he would have something incredibly interesting to say. But to be honest, that's not why we brought him in. 
So understanding what the objective of the interview is, is always the most important part, I think, before we begin. But there there are times when at the end of an interview, we have a, a cool person who's answered a ton of cool questions. And then we're like, hey, I've got a totally random question that has nothing to do with what we're talking about today. Do you want to answer it? And they will say yes or no. And sometimes that lives to see the light of day somewhere in another episode or on social. And sometimes it just ends up on the cutting room floor. A friend of mine who's a documentary producer, uh, I got a good chance to collaborate with him. And we were in the field doing a shoot. And it was clear that, you know, there were some some story threads that were presenting themselves. And I was like, should I pull on these? And I kind of pulled them aside after. I'm like, hey, I think I missed a couple opportunities, like heading into the next interview, because we were going to do like a walk and talk with the same guest. You know, should I pursue those things? Because I'm not sure where they fit in the narrative we had in mind. And he said the best line ever. He's like, yeah, we can always not use it. Yeah, it's true. And and sometimes you get mo- the most incredible moments out of those questions that, that you're just pulling on a thread to borrow your words. And um, sometimes you don't, but when you do, it's awesome and it feels genuine and natural and um, the guest knows you're paying attention and that can, can really pay off. So from Dave before, um, where you have Parker on Twitter, I don't know what it is with people not wanting to use their last names. He says, with so many episodes that you're doing now virtually, how do you replicate the authenticity and the connection with guests. Yeah, I have to be honest, it's been kind of tough. I am the the kind of person both in my professional interviewer life and and also just in my personal life, I very much like feed off of energy and and off of people's body language and the way that they're sitting and the way that they're talking and when their eyes light up and you certainly can see that more now than making a podcast at any other time of like human history. I'm I'm thankful for the tools that we have and that I can sit face to face with someone, even if it's not physically in front of me, I can see them and um, can pick up on that body language, but it is tough. It's, it's been quite the adjustment. I think from my perspective, it has meant kind of amping up my persona in terms of how I interview somebody to make up for the energy that might be lost, not sitting in the same room as somebody, you know, sharing a cup of coffee with that person. Um, so it's certainly taken a little bit more energy from the host perspective. But I also have to, to say this too, that I'm very grateful at times that we now have expanded who we can interview beyond just people who live in New York, because for so long before everything shut down, that was who we interviewed, just people who were in New York. And we were planning a trip out to the Bay Area to like interview all these tech people. And now we recognize that we can make a show and a good show at that without being face to face with somebody. So there's a silver lining. It is every young podcaster's dream to someday interview Ira Glass with a collared shirt and sweatpants. Yes, of course. Let's move on to the the, the third and final clip. So we've talked about the premise of your show. We've talked about the experience inside your show. Work is still not done. I'm exhausted. I'm already exhausted. We still have more work to do on a great show, which is you now need to do these little things that connect deeply to the listener. And I think that creates this environment where somebody can instantly say, oh, Business Casual, that's my favorite show for that purpose which is such an, an amazing, it makes you irreplaceable, which is such a power. It's such a, because you can say, well, the number one business show in the category is this one. And someone goes, I don't care. Kinsey hosts my favorite show. It's irreplaceable. You want to be someone's favorite. And that's where these little moments of connectivity with your audience come into play. So I want to play a clip that represents your ability to do that. Uh, this is the very end of the show, very end of your episode with Eric Schmidt, right after the interview ends. Let's go to the clip. This is a great interview, right? I loved having this conversation, and I hope you're enjoying listening. There's actually more to the conversation, though, that we couldn't fit in this episode. 
and it's all on our YouTube page. Follow Business Casual on YouTube to get the extended cuts of every episode and my behind-the-scenes thoughts on making the show. Thank you so much for listening to this episode of Business Casual. It has been a year of this show, believe it or not. And it's hard to believe that just a year ago, we were talking about big tech. Today, we are literally talking to big tech. We've been through more than I ever thought imaginable. When this show started, we were at the top of a bull market, and now we are about six months out from the bottom. But to me, we're stronger for it. Thank you for trusting me to tell you about prison labor one day, fertility and the economy the next, and the future of higher education the next. We've been through a lot of episodes, so my number is in the show notes and in my Twitter bio. Text me, and I will recommend one of our episodes for you to check out. So uh, you threw yourself backwards in your chair and (laughs) laughed at that first line that you just gave in the clip. This is a great interview, right? Why? Oh, gosh, it just sounds so like cheesy when you hear it back. Because I remember recording that. He's like, guys, I don't know if we can roll with this. (laughs) And everybody's like, no, it's, it's genuine. It is a great interview. Like, if you say so. <laughs> you do you do it well, but you do have like a professional broadcaster style to the way you speak. Is that something you've practiced? I was I, I specialized in broadcast in college. Yeah. I, I did four years of broadcast TV. <laughs> yeah. Oh, there you go. I feel like it's difficult to mimic that. Like it's okay if you've been trained in it, but when you try to mimic it, you actually run out of breath really easily. Like it's yeah, a muscle. Yeah. It is. And and it's also good script writing. You know, that that makes it a lot easier. <laughs> right. You got you have to chunk. Writing for audio is so different than writing for a screen to be read. So that hinted at your ability to build community and your focus on it. Morning Brew has such a big audience, as I've mentioned. This could be a show that you're only involved in through the end of the episode and then people around you take it away. What what is your role in building community around the show? We have from day one with business casual. Uh, endeavor to build that brand, the business casual brand and my personal brand as one in the same. I am the show, the show is is me. And I think that has really helped to create this community of people who feel like you know, that's that's Kinsey. She hosts business casual and and those two are, are pretty inseparable, which I like. I, I think that it lends credence, I think, both to the show and to, and to me as a host, we we grow with each other and we feed off of each other. And that is always going to be helpful, especially when you're trying to make this a personal and and relevant experience for a couple hundred thousand people a week um, is, is important to feel like there's a face that you can associate with this brand. But I think in terms of building community, it really has been a team effort. Our team has tried to go above and beyond in terms of engendering that community and and speaking with them as often as possible. We do listener calls almost daily if if people want to talk to us. Thank yeah. you. Thank <laughs> you for saying you do listener calls. You're the first person to say that they do. I know a lot of people do, but it's you're a, the first person to volunteer that. It's yeah. so transformative. Some some podcasts are are not super bought into the listener call idea. They think it's a waste of time, but because you know you, it's a, a pretty controlled group of people who are going to be willing to take part in a listener call. It's either the people who love you or the people who hate you. <laughs> Rarely do you get that like middle group. But to us, the the most loyal listeners and the people who are most amped on business casual are going to offer the best feedback and and ideas. And maybe they're not going to give the most honest feedback. You know, they they might have a little bit of a bias because they do love it already. But oftentimes they give us really, really useful ideas that we end up putting into the show. Um, one of them it has been these extended cuts on YouTube. And we've grown our team to now have somebody who handles our YouTube, who's making it look really, really good. Um, we have our social manager, Quincy, who is making 
the podcast social incredible and and so much more fun for the community because we want to create the kind of product where of course it's audio first this is a podcast product it's always going to be audio first but that's not the only place where you consume content. You consume content online. You consume you know, on, on your Twitter feed, on your YouTube, um, everywhere. And we want to be everywhere because that's where the listeners are. Uh, the final section is about reinvention. We're going to leave our clips behind. We're going to look ahead. So you've now done over a year of doing this show. And I remember uh, you did a reflection episode uh, just before Eric Schmidt's episode, actually, where you talked about your lessons learned. And I was struck by one in particular, which was you talking about how you ask people about their success. And at first you said you were really narrow about it, where it was like financial success, IPOs, getting acquired, that kind of the exits of these companies. And now you said you talk more about the people they're becoming, the culture that they're building, that kind of stuff is also representative, of course, of, of success. What other things have you improved on or, or what other things would you like to try as you keep evolving the show? Because I think one of the things we lose sight of, because it is such a task to get a show to just consistently good. If you just stop there and don't keep reinventing the show, even your most loyal listener will be like, I'm too in on the joke. Like, give me something new. Yeah. Surprise me. So how are you going to do that over time? Yeah, I think one of the big goals for 2021 is walking that fine line between creating consistent content and creating surprise and delight content. Um, we want it to be consistently really, really good, but we don't want that really, really good to look the same every single time. So trying to narrow in on what exactly that looks like, how we achieve it remains a big question mark and I think will certainly require some reimagination as a podcast that was born of a newsletter company one of the biggest challenges from the early days was how do we make sure that we borrow what's good from what we've learned writing that in my case, writing this newsletter for almost two years now, but make sure that this is a different product. What were the great lessons that we learned that we can take into an audio product? And how do we recognize that that audio product is distinctly different from an email? So that has, has certainly informed our strategy quite a bit, and I'm sure we'll continue to do so. And then I would just say big picture goals is to recognize that success and failure just as well um, look very, very different for different people. And the last year has certainly shown us and shown this team that the culture that we're creating, whether that's the culture within a company, the culture of a country, the culture of the business world at large is incredibly important and it cannot be stressed enough. Um, and I want to continue to ask those questions that maybe make people a little uncomfortable and, um, and that's okay with me. Like if, if we can try to create a conversation, open up a conversation that hasn't been before, that is incredible to me. And, uh, I hope to continue to do that. That would certainly be a goal of mine. So Kinsey, some shows will send swag to their guests or little handwritten cards. Um, what we do, both in the spirit of what's happening in the world during the pandemic and in general, is we give a donation to No Kid Hungry in honor of our guests. So we're going to place that donation because way too many families and kids in particular are food insecure, especially right now. Um, so thank you so much for coming on the show. It has been so fun getting inside of Business Casual. Kinsey Grant, go check out her show. Cheers. Thanks for listening. Every time you do, you're supporting an independent show built by independent creators. Three Clips is written and hosted by me, Jay Kunzo, and this episode was produced by Cherie Turner. Original theme music by Cardboard Rocket Chip. Big thanks to our presenting sponsor, Wistia. You can explore their tools for podcasters and video marketers who are focused on creativity and making business more human at wistia.com. Lastly, two reminders about the things I'm working on. Number one, I've recently released my first ever on-demand recorded course 
all about show development. It's called Growable Shows. 10 original videos, documentation, exercises, and templates you can use to develop your ideas into a premise that people can't wait to subscribe to. So you can check out my course in uh, the show notes. There's a link right there for you. And you can also subscribe to my newsletter. That's free, Playing Favorites. Every Friday morning, I send one new story about making your audience's favorite stuff. There's too much noise, the tips, the tricks, the cheats and hacks and all the BS about trying to build a creative-led business. So Playing Favorites is my opportunity and yours to just set that aside for a moment and remember why we're doing this and get better at it. It's all about making someone's favorite stuff, isn't it? So that's what I write about every week. You can join thousands of other people who subscribe using the link in your show notes. All right, let's go to our final bonus segment called Play It Forward, which is where our guests shout out a show they love that is not at the top of the charts. In the spirit of trying to uh, prioritize culture and understanding of the ways that people interpret culture differently, uh, Code Switch from NPR is a fantastic show that we are huge fans of. I think 2020 certainly has shown us a lot of lessons that have needed to have been learned many, many generations ago. And this show really does a fantastic job of bringing that into context for people who maybe relate to those lessons or people who just want to go deeper and get more insight and hear honest conversations about it. I think it's incredible and I'm a big fan. Okay, that's it for this episode. I'm Jay Akunzo and I believe this work you and I do is not about who arrives. We're so obsessed with who arrives, more downloads, more followers, more, 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 more to arrive. Look my way, grab attention. No, it's not about who arrives. It's about who stays. It's not about grabbing attention. It's about holding it. And the only thing that works when that is the job is to create something people like. Don't try to make people like stuff. Make stuff people like. So thank you for sticking around with me. And I'll talk to you on Monday with a brand new episode of Three Clips. Bye-bye.